we are continuing to go through the book of Ephesians, this, this letter that was written by Paul to the church in Ephesus as well as the other churches in the areas around Ephesus. And last week we looked at this very important verse in a, in, in a really, really critical passage in Ephesians, the sort of the central point, the point that all of, all of Ephesians builds up to and builds away from. It's all sort of pointing to this one phrase. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The entire first half of this letter, the first three chapters, are really building our theology of calling and trying to describe what is it that we are called to. And we've said repeatedly that this calling is all about Jesus reconciling all things to himself, of unifying all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth under his lordship. So that's our calling. That's what we're called to do, is make his lordship known. Um, and this really, this it, it's all summed up really well in this description of what the purpose of, of what God's purpose, what is the mystery of his will, God's will is according to his good pleasure purposed in Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. That Christ, that God's will is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. To bring unity to all things. To all things. I'll let that sink in in a time when um, the church and, and, the, and our culture generally, not just even in North America, but around the world is really reeling from disunity. What are Christians called to do is to make unity in Christ known and manifest, to make Jesus' Lordship known throughout all of all of humanity, and to say that we have been united in Christ, that we are a to use the, to use a another phrase in Ephesians actually that we're that the church is is God's technicolor plan for for unity and redemption. So I think the you know the church needs to be at the forefront of some of these racial conversations that are that are happening. Um, because the church has the the church has the answer. And the answer is Jesus. That everyone is and and we'll see this by the end of this passage that we're going to take a look at today. Um, and the passage we're taking a look at is Ephesians 4, verses 7 through to 16. Um, and a really uh, well-known passage if you've been in the church for any length of time. This is one of those passages that maybe you've read and thought, oh, this is about the paid professional holy people. And we're going to realize today, I think, that that is absolutely not the case. Let's read it and you'll see what I mean. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the, to the lower earthly regions? He who descended in this way uh, is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself 
gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And the part that many of us have probably heard before is in that verse uh, 11, well, ju just that verse 11, Christ gave him, himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. And in many traditions, that is a, that's, a, that's a description of the paid pastor or the paid holy person, that it's their job to be an apostle or an evangelist or a... a um, a prophet or a pastor or a teacher and because that they're the ones being paid they're the ones who should do all of that work and if we pay attention to this passage of scripture i think we'll find that's the exact opposite of what scripture teaches the exact opposite i don't know where that thought process comes from that it's just the person who the church pays who's supposed to be doing all the ministry because it's just not biblical um but let's back up a little bit at the beginning of this passage, verse 7, Paul talks about God giving us grace, each one of us, as Christ apportions it. That he starts out by basically pointing back to the previous verses and saying, okay, we have this unity in Christ, and we have, we have a calling, a common calling that we've received to make unity in Christ uh, manifest and known in all of creation. And to be able to follow that calling, God has graced us with different giftings. Christ has apportioned. Christ has, has said, here is a church, and in this church I'm going to give all these different people giftings to be able to fulfill this mission in the world. Uh, uh, unified together as one body. And he makes a really interesting, uh, this really interesting argument based on that because his entire point is that Christ is ascended to the throne in heaven and is actually the authority over all creation even now he is the king of all kings and so uh, you know keeping that in mind you can start to understand why he immediately goes into this this um, this sidetrack thought process after quoting a passage from the Psalms the passage is, is uh, Psalm 68, verse 18. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And this, this is an interesting psalm. It's a psalm all about um, God defeating his enemies and ascending the throne of grace in victory after, the, after those defeats. And Paul looks at that psalm and sees Jesus in it, that Jesus has defeated his enemies on the cross, his enemy of sin and death. 
have been defeated and his, and Satan has certainly been defeated on the cross. And so he, we know, has ascended the throne. But then Paul makes it really clear that that ascension also means a proclamation of victory in some sense. And so before ascending to the throne, Jesus, um, Jesus goes into the depths, into Hades or hell. Um, there's a lot of debate about exactly what's going on with passages like this. But what's, I think, very clear is it, Paul's saying, he descended to the lower earthly regions before he ascended to the higher regions. And those earthly regions, those lower regions in Paul's mind are likely where um, people pre-Christ were either uh, held for a time before they had the gospel preached to them, or it's the place that has been prepared for the devil and his angel, which, which is hell. And either way, Christ is going to proclaim his victory um, to those in those earthly realms. The point being that Christ is not just king over the earth. Christ is also king over the heavens and 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 everything in them. And so uh, when Paul talks about principalities and powers, which he already has in earlier parts of this book, he's, he's just reminding us, you know, the principalities and powers of this world, that those, those um, spiritual beings that would do evil and seek the destruction of humanity, who, who want us to destroy ourselves, Christ is sovereign over them. And sometimes it doesn't feel like it. But Christ is sovereign over them. And if he's sovereign over them, he can be sovereign over us. And even more than just sovereignty, God gives his people the gifts to be able to fight against those principalities and powers. He gives us armor. And Paul's going to pick this up again at the end of Ephesians. So it's something to keep in mind. But we see right at the end of that in verse 11, that's when Paul begins to describe um, some of these giftings. Now, this is not an extensive lift of giftings in the church, far from it. But there is one thing that all of these gifts have in common. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. And go, I'll read 12 and 13 as well. To equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. Five titles. Um, and you'll notice there, before we get into exactly what those titles are, what those giftings are, um, it's, I think it's important to note that it's saying, Paul's saying, God gifts the church leaders. So actually there's a couple of things uh, I'm realizing that they have they have uh, they have in common. The first is that it's all leadership positions within the church. That God gifts the church leaders for the purpose of building the church up. Um, and these gifts are given gifts are given to everyone. But there's something about these leadership positions that Paul notes as being ones that are particularly important for the building up of the church. And it's this: all of these giftings involve God's servants speaking God's word to God's people. They all involve people um, 
serving the church by explaining the gospel, opening up the scriptures and saying, this is what God is saying to us through these texts, through his word. Um, whether that's the apostles or the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, or the teachers. Um, and this is important for Paul because it's, he sees a, a right understanding of the faith as being really, really, really important to our growth in Christ. He even talks about growing in the knowledge of Jesus, in the knowledge of the Son of God. And he, he'll go on to say how, um, <clears throat> how teaching, sound teaching will, will help us to not just grow, but to be able to um, stay level in stormy seas, to, to stay calm and focused on Jesus. This is, the, these giftings are not just meant for the building up of the church, they're meant for the protection of the church as well. And, um, and part of Paul's entire point is that these giftings are meant to be, give, to be used for the church, but it's not so that the church can passively receive and do nothing with them. These, the fruit of these speaking gifts of apostleship, of, of being a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, and a teacher, this is not all meant for, for you to listen to a sermon and then do nothing about it. These gifts are meant to build uh, the church up in the knowledge of the Son of God. And so we're meant to chew on teaching, to understand our faith deeper. That's, that should actually be a goal of our faith, is to understand more and more every day, because that is what is going to help us grow. This is why Bible studies... Uh, are, are actually so important because Bible studies are those places where you can have conversations or call them small groups or home churches. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're these places where you can wrestle with the text and really chew on it in community with other people um, and, and help to understand your faith better. And as you understand your faith better, you'll be able to discern false teaching better, which is a thing that Paul's going to bring up at the end of this passage. But let's talk about these five giftings that, that of the church. Apostles. What are apostles? They are people who are sent by God to introduce the gospel in new places. Um, so they're the, they're the, I think those are, those are sort of classic missionaries. And uh, we might be thinking, well, there were only 12 apostles. And there were only, there were 12 people who were in Jesus's close circle and then three even closer within that close circle. And they were all called apostles, the sent ones. Uh, but the, the title of apostle is applied to all sorts of different people in the New Testament, not just the 12. Um, the 12 apostles were given a sort of reverence as being part of Jesus's inner circle who were, who were trained by him for ministry. But, but, um, the, the, the title, as a, as a matter of gifting, is given to all sorts of people. So um, there's, a, there's a lot of debate about whether apostles and prophets in particular are giftings that are still given to the church today. And my opinion is, yes, they absolutely are. Apostles, people sent by God to introduce the gospel in new places. Uh, prophets, you might think, 
that prophets are all about telling the future, that they're the ones who God reveals the future to, and that they reveal the future to the church. And surprisingly, I think for many of us, uh, that does not happen often in scripture. Instead, prophets are people who just speak to the church um, for the church's strengthening, for their encouragement, and for their comfort, which often means prophets are the ones who are warning the church that, that the church is not being faithful to God anymore and they need to repent. They're actually just sharing God's word in particular moments um, of importance in the church's life. And that strengthening encouragement, comfort, that's exactly how Paul describes what the job of a prophet is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So apostles center, introduce the gospel, prophets, they speak to the church for the strengthening, encouragement, and comfort of the church. Evangelists are gifted in making the gospel known. Evangelists are gifted in making the gospel known. I think we can probably say, so I, could, I, I think that I'm, I'm correct in saying this, or it's at least a little bit accurate, that if apostles are ones who get sent to introduce the gospel in new places, evangelists stay in places to help make the gospel known, to explain the gospel, and to equip God's people to share their faith. So evangelists aren't just being sent out to preach the gospel. They're preaching the gospel and equipping others to preach the gospel in a particular place. Um, which, which should immediately raise a red flag when you hear about traveling evangelists. If there's evangelists traveling around um, that aren't connected to particular churches, I think that's actually a little bit of a red flag for me. Um, but if their goal is to equip people to sharing their faith, then I think that's, um, that's, that's, that's one of the key goals of an evangelist, is not just to do all the preaching themselves, but to help others learn how to describe their faith as well. And then pastors and teachers. And this one is super interesting. You, you wouldn't know it from the language, but, um, but there's a lot of debate about whether Paul is talking about pastors and teachers as separate categories, or if he said pastor teachers, try linking the two together intrinsically. Um, because there's that, that and between them, if you read the verse, the pastors and teachers, that and doesn't exist in the Greek. It's the pastor, the pastor's teachers. Um, and so there's a lot of debate about what exactly he's doing there. Um, at the very least we can say is that Paul is connecting the two giftings together, that all pastors must be able to teach. But not all teachers necessarily um, should be pastors. Uh, and pastors, I actually, I actually don't like that that phrase is used in this passage. I think the, the better phrase is shepherding, that, that God calls these particular people to shepherd his flock through their teaching. Shepherding through teaching as, 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 as one of the aspects of what shepherding looks like in practice. Uh, this is where things like, like titles of like teaching pastor find their footing. Um, and this becomes really important for Paul in passages like Acts 20 verses 28 to 29, which I'll read um, for us now. 
keep watch. This is, this is Paul talking to the church in Ephesus, actually. It's sort of his goodbye letter to the church in Ephesus. Um, and th these are his parting wor words to the church in Acts. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Savage wolves are coming, he says to the church leaders in, in, in Ephesus. So he says, shepherd the church of God, shepherd the church of God. And this, this, um, this idea of savage wolves coming in is constantly in scripture connected. This metaphor is connected to teaching false doctrine and being drawn away by false doctrine. And so at least part of what Paul is saying there to these overseers, to the, the, what we would call the pastors or the priests of the, the Ephesian church, to use all sorts of different language now, that might be confusing, but to the leaders of the Ephesian church, <laughs> he's saying there are people who are going to come in and try to change the church with bad teaching and you need to protect yourself from them. And interestingly, this does happen. We see it in first and second Timothy that the, these wolves do come in and try to, 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 um, to influence the church through false teaching. What Paul is saying here is absolutely true, which means that good teaching protects the flock. Good teaching protects the flock, which is why all of these speaking gifts are so important. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are all meant to teach God's word in different, in different ways and in different contexts, all for the purpose of building God's church. And it all protects God's flock from following dangerous teaching. And all of this fits into this vision of ministry that Paul has, that it's not supposed to be paid professional holy people doing all the work in a church. Uh, we see it in verse 12, right? Equip, this is, these giftings are all given to equip the people, God's people, his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. And works of service is a pretty strange translation, I think, because it's not just service. Oftentimes, in the New Testament, that phrase, service, is, is, is actually translated as ministry. It's works of ministry. God has gifted leaders to encourage, equip, and equip the church to do ministry themselves. Think about that for a second. I think... Oftentimes, we, we don't think about ministry that way. We think about ministry as being, well, um, I really wish we would do, you know, X, Y, or Z. We might have an idea and we think, oh, I really wish we would do it. And by that, oftentimes we mean, I really wish someone else would do that. I really wish the deacons would. I really wish the pastor would do this idea that I have. And Paul would say, neat, um, God has gifted you to do X, Y, or Z. God has gifted you for ministry. So don't go looking around for other people to do the thing that you want done. God has gifted you to do ministry. And so the question is, what has God gifted you to do? And to discern that um, with others and to step into that. And I think we can get in the way of ourselves a lot of the time because we 
we're really good at a couple of things as human beings. One of them, and, and maybe as Canadians, we're really good at, at defeating self-talk. We're really good at talking ourselves out of things and just, and just feeling defeated by the way we talk about ourselves. Um, I don't know what that's, I don't know what that's about, but I've noticed it, um, across the country and in, in, and even in, in myself, I've noticed it. And it's something that I don't think is of God and that I, that we need to repent of and ask God to transform in our hearts and our minds. But, um, that self-talk, that negative self-talk tends to mean, excuse me, that we are better at tearing things down than building them up. And that we are better at idolizing the past than at looking to Christ to gift us a better future. We idolize the past and we don't look to the future that God has for us. We sort of look to the past and say, oh, why isn't the past now? And God is looking at us and saying, I have a future for you if you would just step into it. If you would just use your gifts that I've given you to do the ministry that I've called you to, you can begin to step into it. And then we just, we enter into these patterns of self-defeating talk. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, it's too much work. I'm too, I'm too tired. I don't have the help of other people. Um, I don't, I don't want to do, I don't want to do things on my own. And then we look through scripture and how often actually are, are people called to do things on their own, especially, excuse me, if they're a prophet, especially if they're an apostle, those giftings go out on their own often. And it's scary or, or oftentimes even just two by two. It's not, it's not even just going off alone. It's going off with one other person and we're totally afraid of it. But God has gifted us to be able to do the ministry he's called us to. And there's something that's really powerfully at stake here. Um, and it's making Jesus known that if we don't do this, if we don't allow our giftings to be used by God to, to build up his church through, through participating in ministry, we are unable to point people to Jesus. And this is, this is, this is what the core of what we're supposed to be doing is, is knowing the gospel, applying the gospel also that we can live the gospel in our daily lives. We are called to know the gospel, apply the gospel to our lives, and then live the gospel in our daily lives. And so all of these teaching and well, all of these gifts that are speaking to the church are all for that purpose, that we would know the gospel, apply it, and live it actually live it. And it's only when we know, apply, and live the gospel that we will have church unity. Christian unity, uh, Paul connects that we're going to reach all unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. It's He ties it together with orthodox belief and right belief in the knowledge of the Son of God, which I think means that if we significantly move away from the historic faith that has been confessed, we are promoting disunity. And that promotion of disunity is what is called false teaching in scripture. And so I, um, you know, Paul tells Timothy to watch your life and your doctrine closely. 
and it's for exactly this reason. If he significantly moves away from his from his doctrine, the doctrine that's been handed down to him by Paul, he will slowly but surely move towards becoming the false teacher that he doesn't want to be. And the same is true. Um, the same is true for us generally. And not only is our unity tied to orthodox belief, it's also tied to maturity. It's also tied to maturity. We see this at the end of that verse. We become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Our unity is tied to the body maturing and growing. Um, and boy, we see, so, you know, I'll, I'll bring, we'll bring Liam out afterwards. Jess, at the end of the service, you can bring Liam out and he can say hi. He has grown so much. Um, and we've, he, yeah, he's, he's just a little giant now, even more than he was before. And, uh, and he's, he's at the age now where he's starting to develop all sorts of different knowledges. He's starting to, he's starting to build phrases, which is really neat, like five or six word phrases that he knows. He's starting to physically express his emotions. You know how kids will hide when they poop and will cover their face when they're disappointed or sad. Um, or will whine incessantly because he wants something very quickly, um, because he doesn't because they don't know how to express their emotions in different ways. So they have to they have to physically manifest it. Um, that's the stage he's at. But they're all signs of growth, and we don't expect him to stay there. I don't expect that every time that he's ashamed that he's going to cover his face and run away. I don't expect that when he's hungry and getting impatient, that he's just going to scream and whine. At some point, he grows past that. And the same is true of the church, that I think sometimes we get into this place of we say, well, we know enough and we don't have to grow anymore. But actually, we're just two-year-olds um, in the faith, and things get difficult, and we start to whine and complain, and we never mature, and we never grow up. And, and Paul is saying here, no, the church is actually meant to grow up. The church is meant to grow in its maturity. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's particularly in our knowledge of Christ. As the church grows in our knowledge of Jesus, as we know the gospel, as we apply the gospel, and as we live the gospel in our lives, that's when the church sees growth. And that growth is in maturity and also in numbers. And until we let the gospel change our hearts as individuals, until the gospel changes your heart and how you live your life today, do not expect it to change a stranger's heart. Because they're going to hear the message and then look at you and say, well, if it didn't change their life, what's it going to do to mine? Probably nothing. And so this is just all a waste of time. Our witness is in both word and deed. And the deed confirms the word. The deed confirms the word. And so how are we living? Are we living the gospel? Do we even, do we know it? And do we think, how does the gospel impact um, different situations in life? Because it's only going to be through that process that we mature in the faith. And so uh, Paul gives a, di a, a description of different applications, which is really helpful. He says, you know, if you, if you grow in your faith, first off, 
You won't be tossed around by bad ideas. You won't be tossed around by the cunning and scheming of a man. And every day we're bombarded by this. We're bombarded with ideas and we're bombarded with ideas that are actually antithetical to the Christian faith because we, we don't live in a Christian culture. We don't live in a, in a time and in a place where Christianity is the, is the guiding moral philosophy. It's not anymore. And, and I think there's a big debate about whether it even was to begin with, but I'll leave that to the side for now. We're bombarded with ideas all the time. And um, I think one of the things that we can be doing is to know our faith well enough to be able to take a step back and filter ideas through, through a gospel lens, which includes filtering it through scripture and asking what does scripture teach about reality um, and how do these different ideas that I'm hearing match up to that. And, and so we, there, there are all sorts of different examples of this. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I want you to do the work on your own to think this through. But things like, you know, scripture teaches a creational focus that we are created beings, created for a purpose and created in a very particular way as physical beings. And we, we're, we've been created by God. We have sinned, but Christ offers transformation of our hearts. And so all those things together should immediately, we can hear different ideas and immediately sort of place them in, in particular uh, boxes and say, okay, what, what does, what does Christ have to say to this situation, this bad, this idea? Um, you know, God is consistently the referent in terms of justice, righteousness, and peace. That is, we define justice according to God. We define righteousness according to God. We define peace according to God. We define love, faithfulness, according to God, especially love, because God is love. Um, and so we can compare all of these different things working itself out in, in history and say, okay, do our ideas of justice match the justice of God? Do our ideas of righteousness, that is right relationship, match who God is and what God has taught? Um, scripture teaches individual transformation, individual transformation, but then also teaches that we have a communal responsibility and communal guilt when we use that responsibility to harm others. Individuals are transformed, but we still have community responsibility. So think about that. It's not all about systems and structures necessarily in scripture. It's all about individual transformation and communal responsibility of saying, my heart needs to be transformed and your heart does too. And to, and to come together to lament and to, to, to ask for God to, to work and to ask for God to transform even more people's hearts and minds, um, which, which is what changes the community and changes the systems and structures actually. And scripture is consistently talking about first in the church and then in the world, that this transformation that happens in individuals happens in the church first, and the effects of it happen in the church first, and then they happen in the world. This is why Paul constantly talks about loving one another, that 
even in this passage, it's from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love. Grows and builds itself up in love. It doesn't grow and build everything up in love. It's itself. That is the body of Christ is called to love itself primarily. And then an overflow of that love of each other is the love of others. And if we don't love each other in the church, it's probably a sign that we don't love others outside of the church. It's a really good sign, actually. And so, given all this, instead of being tossed to and fro by bad ideas, we're told to speak the truth in love, Paul says. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Um, and what is the truth? The truth is Christ crucified, died, and resurrected. That is, the truth is the gospel. The truth is... And this truth is something that we need to remind ourselves over and over and to speak to each other over and over. We need to remind each other that Christ died for people like George Floyd and Chantel Moore. George Floyd is the man who was um, murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis and, and, and Chantel Moore was um, shot and killed. An indigenous, an indigenous Canadian from BC shot and killed by a police officer in New Brunswick and there's there's very few details about exactly what went on there I tried to look overnight and I couldn't I couldn't find very much but think about this for Canada five Canada's population is five percent indigenous and that five percent of indigenous population uh, make up just over 35 percent of all police related fatalities that is a that sh that's a shocking statistic and should point to something that's deep within our systems and structures in in Canada but even more than that the state of our hearts in Canada that we can even allow that to continue that we can allow um reserve the reserve system to continue as it has been which is an abomination in and of itself but how many reserves don't have water in Canada? Don't have clean water? A lot. It's not a problem that happens out there. It happens here, and it's all due to, in large part, the church not taking the transformation and the, and the use of God's gifts for ministry seriously. And we need to. We need to. God, Christ died for people such as George Floyd and Chantal Moore. But Christ also died for Derek Chauvin, the officer who killed George Floyd. Christ died for anti-fascists or antifas and also racists. Christ died for peaceful protesters and rioters. Christ died for President Trump and Christ died for Justin Trudeau. Christ died for Saul of Tarsus, and he died for you, and he died for me. He died to save sinners, which we all are. And that needs to be an engine of our faith, of knowing that Christ died for us, and that should inform our posture towards and engagement with the world and other people. It changes how we look at people and how we interact. And this engine 
if we really take it seriously, is that engine that is going to build up the church in love. Because it's, it's going to move the church towards love. If we see everyone as sinners in need of God's grace, our reaction to things isn't just going to be anger that festers. It's going to be sorrow that leads to change and transformation. Godly sorrow that, that says, I'm so brokenhearted about the way things are. I'm so brokenhearted that I can only but cry out to God to change the world and to change me first. And that's really what the world needs. Your ministry, the ministry that God has called you to, is to know the gospel, apply the gospel, and live the gospel so that you can make the gospel known. And it's through that that the whole body of Christ joined together and held by every supporting ligament will grow and build itself up in love as each part does its work. I pray for you this morning that God would give you a sense of your giftings and 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 quicken your heart to the calling that you have received and to the ministry that he has prepared for you to do in this time and in this season of our church's life and in the life of our of our country and our world let me pray for you heavenly father thank you for today and thank you for your word i pray that you would give us the eyes to see you at work in the world transform our hearts and our minds father according to your gospel remind us of who we are in you and who others are in you that we are all sinners in need of grace and tr uh, transform our vision according to that truth father put it on the tip of our tongues and on the top of our minds in every situation this week every time we read the news every time uh, we talk with spouses or friends about everything that's happening Remind us of your gospel and transform our minds so that, and, and our hearts, so that we can um, be your agents of unity and peace in this world. And I pray, Father, that you would uh, yeah, quicken our hearts to the ministry that you have prepared and gifted each of us listening uh, this morning to do. Um, and give us encouragement to overcome defeating self-talk and instead um, strengthen us with your spirit that we would walk boldly towards um, participating in your ministry in the world i pray in jesus name amen